You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 67, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today's expert I'm thrilled to introduce as Dr. Josh Umber. I've been told by at least a half dozen guests that I needed to have him on, and so I finally relented. Dr. Umber is one of the partners who created Atlas MD, a direct primary care practice in Wichita, Kansas, and an electronic medical record system designed for direct primary cares, or DPCs. I wanted to have him on to discuss the commercial space of direct primary care and the products and commercial services springing up to serve it. We also discussed some interesting developments with federal laws and the political split within the American Academy of Family Practice, the main professional society for family docs. I'm sure you find the discussion as interesting and important for docs and patients as I did. Links to things we discussed can be found at my website, theparadox.com slash 067, and that's paradox with a CS. If you haven't already, please take a moment to subscribe to the show and leave a rating. Also, for those interested, I've begun putting extra content up on my Patreon page, which I promised quite a while ago, and you can find that at www.patreon.com slash theparadox, spelled the same way as before, which I intend to do weekly. It will be a Justin Amash update, totally unrelated to the content of this podcast, but I hope a fun behind-the-scenes look at what he thinks and what he's up to will be an interesting content that's an extra bonus for those who want to be a patron of the show. That extra content is available for those who support the show, and all the money raised, as always, is used for the production and promotion of the show. And again, you can find it at patreon.com slash theparadox. But without further ado, this episode, what's the over-umber on direct primary care becoming the dominant force in primary care? Enjoy. Well, I'm delighted to have my new friend, Dr. Josh Umber, for joining the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Well, I've uh, I've admitted, I've I've had at least a half dozen of my former guests say, ask me why I haven't had you on the show. <laughs> and so I felt, I felt some sort of obligation. Uh, I'm certainly following a lot of uh, your public work, either through your writing or your, your public speaking, other interviews you've done. It ha- I have been remiss to not have you on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. And I want to talk about some different things that I haven't talked to some other DPC docs today. Excellent. Uh, specifically, uh, why don't a little bit give a little bit of your background? I mean, I mentioned the intro uh, that you're at Atlas MD or DPC Doc, but why don't you tell a little bit of your story? How you, because I think you know you're one of the pioneers. I talked to um, uh, Newhoffel, and Dr. Newhoffel was sort of one of the first people to you know do, do DPC at least that I can, at least there weren't a whole lot at that time. Uh, you were also, I think, a, I guess, an innovator in that sense too. Why don't you talk about how you? got into it and what made you decide to do that? And I guess just your trajectory from out of residency into the DPC model. Yeah. Uh, we had been watching this space for a long time. Um, kind of our origin story is that growing up, my dad was a trash man and uh, ran a great business and, and kind of in hindsight, it was a membership model. 
It was pick up once a week and yeah. uh, you know charge once a month, and it just was simple and made sense. And uh, uh, now he's a lawyer, so I still tell people he's a trash man. Because <laughs> Significantly less embarrassing. Um, but uh, so when I was in undergrad, I started working for a plastic surgeon uh, who said he would hire me as his uh, biller and coder. And I remember specifically asking him, what's that mean? And he said we would figure it out. And, and we just never really did. Uh, he was a brilliant cutter. And, and at the same time, not one that was you know, wonderfully great at paperwork. And that was a realization that Growing up, you're taught just work really hard, be good at what you do, and the rest will follow. And that wasn't true in medicine. It, it was a sloppy system where the sausage was getting made and, and the spoil went to the person who was best at doing the paperwork, not necessarily the best as a surgeon. And uh, from that point on, we started looking at alternatives, uh, insurance-free models. Some were doing affordable fee-for-service. Some were doing uh, the expensive concierge medicine. And honestly, I think the most helpful part of that was learning what didn't work. Yeah. Uh, lots of doctors doing lots of things, but usually not adding value. Uh, someone would just say, well, cut my insurance costs in half. Well, $150 bill to the insurance that you got reimbursed $75, it cut in half to $75 is still more than what people's copay was. And so that would be fine if you came and brought other stuff, but it was so pervasive in the system that docs would say, no, the value is for me, everything else is external. And and we really took a different view of that. Right. And so I guess my question then would be, uh, so you, you did your residency, your family practice, I believe, correct? Yes, sir. Yeah. So you finished your family practice residency. You'd already sort of seen what was kind of broken in medicine, I guess, ahead of time. And mm -hmm. w did you have a number of partners or people you're training with who were sort of had the same ideas or the idea that you need to do things differently and you went in as a joint venture or was this a solo thing? Uh, a bit of both. You know, the, the nice thing about sharing call with your residency colleagues is they're a captive audience. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't necessarily walk away. It was that listen to me, uh, tell you know, my vision for stuff or go do an admin. Uh, but uh, so I, I would tell everybody, you know, how I, I pictured this working and, and Dr. Doug, my, my partner and co-founder, really latched onto that idea and, and saw the value of that. His dad had been a hospital administrator for 40 years. So he had seen kind of the other half of medicine being run and also heavily bureaucratic uh, and, and the struggle from that side to improve it. So it really was kind of a, a, a nice blend of um skill sets hand in glove and then when we came out we, we just took a fresh eye since neither one of us had run a clinic before it was really easy to kind of not make the same mistakes yeah and, um, well it it's interesting too because you know when you talk about the plastic surgeon be really good at being a surgeon and not very good at the we'll say the business aspects i mean i know a lot of the business is sort of phony baloney stuff with it filling out insurance forms and prior authorizations and things like that but essentially that the business aspect of medicine is important too and i think uh people look at the dpc and they say well this is a great model this is you know practicing medicine the way i want and they kind of forget the fact that you're also a small business uh small businessman or, or businesswoman and you have to be able to manage all those other parts of a business you know your marketing your overhead expenses and things like that 
And if you don't do that well, you also can't be, you might not be successful. And so there's certainly an extra element of risk uh, with the DPC. I think a big reason that doctors don't embrace the business side of it is we're just historically taught not to. Uh, I know my med school specifically showed old artwork of doctors taking money backhanded or under the table that a uh, business is bad, profit is bad. It's, it's unbecoming and unprofessional of a physician uh, to worry about these things. But then look where that got us. Ignorance is not bliss. Burying yeah. our hand in sand is not a solution. Now we had this infiltration of administrators all raising the cost of things. Our med school professors did not work for free. And so ignoring it doesn't change. It's like ignoring your cancer. Um, but we never thought that we could take responsibility for it. If business is so bad, there's no right way to do it. And the, I, I would say, you know, a lot of hospitals did it wrong. And so that reinforced the, the concept. They didn't even know that there was a solution that they could reach for. Uh, so it was funny that we would ask, you know, big pharma and, and government and insurance, we both say that they're part of the problem and then ask them to fix it. Right. And why would we give you know, the, um, uh, why would we give the people who broke it the, the, the authority to, to fix it? So when we said, okay, we, we are going to come out with a different pricing model and we're not going to take insurance, now we, we have to justify ourselves. And, and we have to justify that with value. And to do that, we need to adopt anything and everything from business that can help us help our patients. And then when you kind of frame it like that, now everything seems like a great opportunity. How do we get meds cheaper? How do we get labs cheaper? How do we provide you know, the most cost-effective EKG uh, or culture services or whatever and how, then that extends into in a lot of ways how do i set my pricing well that depends on my overhead and my staff and my patient panel size and, and what value i can bring to them because uh, if i don't do wholesale meds some docs will say try to charge the same amount we you can't charge the same amount and do less yeah so then i need to see more patients and you know and then there there comes a, a friction point there um so we're very good problem solvers. If someone comes to you with a migraine, every, every headache's a migraine, but we tease, about, tease out the, the wheat from the shaft with our patients to identify the right type of headache and the right treatment, et cetera. Um, so we can apply a lot of those same skills to the business of what is the most effective marketing? How do I add value? How do I innovate? How do I help my patients in a way that doesn't involve insurance? It's actually kind of exciting, I, I think, opens up a whole new part of a physician's brain that they've been waiting to scratch and just didn't know that itch was there. Yeah, no, I, I think there's no question about that. And and the, the money aspect of medicine is very interesting too, because I, I absolutely remember that one during medical school that is very much frowned upon that, that the fact there's any sort of monetary exchange and taking care of people. But, you know, we take care of each other all the time in so many different ways. And at no time do you feel like there shouldn't, people shouldn't be compensated for that. I mean, I think you would, no one would think that they shouldn't pay their priest or their, you know, the pastor to, to minister to the sick and, you know, for funerals and things like that. So I don't, I don't understand why we've taken this approach in medicine that. Oh, it's, it's uniquely a physician problem. Yeah. Well, uh, right. I, and, the patients yeah, I expect right. to not, you know, have to pay. Right. <laughs> they pay at the pharmacy counter, they pay at the lab, they pay their insurance um, is because we didn't connect ourselves to that value and that payment. The physician, we, we kind of taught the patients that we're worth our copay, 
and and we gave them a very low value for that. Yeah. So uh, no wonder they were frustrated paying for that. And I can pay for a, a budget hotel room or a fantastic hotel room. I'm still going to sleep in, in both of them for eight yeah. hours. I'm going to be unconscious of the value around me. But one of them figures out a way to provide, you know, to get, get a higher fee and a happier customer. Um, so it, it does force physicians to take a, a, a little bit more of the, the, the lead role and and show patients directly, it, you're paying me and I'm providing a value to you. And I love the, the classic Hollywood line, of course, it's, it's nothing personal, it's only business. Right, yeah. That guy gets shot by the good guy. Um, I, I think in medicine or, or the other argument, the academic argument is medicine is too important to be left to a business. To, again, I would disagree with, yeah. is, is it is vitally important. And I find a few things more uh, personal than that relationship is, is you're quite literally feeding my family in exchange, I'm caring for the health and well-being of yours. And and there's no middleman now. There's me, a nurse, and a patient. And, and that's about it. So I can't run from it. Um, we have to embrace it. We have to build a good relationship of mutual trust and benefit between the doctor and the patient. But um, so they can now fully appreciate that when I respond back to them at Friday at 9 o'clock to their text about a you know, sick child, it's me. Yeah, and, and right. Not just another doctor who's paid to be on call that they don't know and don't feel a connection to. So as we build our, our emotional connection, we prove our value and worth to our patients. Yeah, I think the I've never really thought of it before, but I think the aspect of insurance and that you have this third party in between the within the payment process that in many ways it makes a physician feel as if the patient really has no skin in the game. They're not really pay anything and so that they are sort of providing care for free to that patient and that their perception is that the patient you know doesn't pay anything and the same by the same token the patient may feel the same way as well and so because that value like you said is missing it it just it makes it feel like for physicians that you are kind of doing things for free and so that if you have if you start looking at as any sort of financial transaction involved in this process that's kind of dirty when it that was always happening, it was just kind of more in the background, maybe, and that it was not a direct, uh, direct transaction with the the patient. And so the, I can the see funny how thing is there were countless transactions. Oh yeah, you know? no kidding. <laughs> Even more expensive. We feel bad when we made it cheaper. Um, no, it's it's so silly. Yeah. Well, it it. I mean, the whole thing is kind of crazy that it it's devolved into where it is. I suppose you know you could look back and you'd say, well, that's how it would have happened. And I would and I have not been able to meet someone who's was practicing the 1950s because <laughs> they're you know mostly long gone and just know what it was like back then i mean i think it probably i mean obviously it was different because there wasn't really an insurance model at that time but anyway you know we we are with the, in the system we are in uh, my impression quote, uh, if you want a new idea read an old book right <laughs> we, we random set of circumstances a, a liberal radio talk show uh was complaining about Sean Hannity, uh, and I said, you know, there's we don't like anything he says, but he had this duck on the other day, um, and the the lady they were interviewing was Professor uh, Christy Ford Chaplin, um, and she, she's a medical economic historian yeah. of, of sub sub specialties, and that she was oh my god, that's exactly what my book is on, or the first half of it, of uh, that in the 20s and 30s, this is what we had. She called him prepaid medical. But there were clinics and you'd pay a 
a fee all the time and they provide you care. And she talked about the, the economic benefits. It's kind of beautifully self-balancing because if you do too much, you go bankrupt. If you don't do enough value, then um, you, uh, you don't show your work to the patients. So then, um, you know, again, all things come back around. Yeah. Well, there's nothing new under the sun, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, that's true. Uh-huh. So that kind of brings me to the next question. And one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on to discuss, because I feel like uh, direct primary care <clears throat> or even direct care, we'll say just even for specialists, is is uh, growing. And I don't know if you f- feel that as well. I mean, I feel like it's not exponential growth, but I feel like we're get, we're approaching the point where it's going to start really getting a lot bigger. Um, and uh, by that token, the commercial aspect of who's involved in this this arena now seems to be growing quite a bit too because I now see consultants I see people advertising products and services to a, what you know before was such a small niche that it wasn't even a niche right um, but do you get that impression too that it's now getting to the point where there's actually a market for ancillary services to provide the sort of people opening their own clinics yeah I, I think it's interesting um, it's a growing pain you know we're, we're probably moving from uh, infant and toddler stage to awkward adolescence as DPC grows now it's something of value which is wonderful in the sense that they said 10 years ago this wouldn't work yeah um which is fine I mean that's kind of you know par for any innovation uh it took Starbucks 17 years to get 17 stores and we have over a thousand doctors doing DPC in in 10 um because I think some people say well if this is so great why isn't it everywhere it really kind of is on a great trajectory, uh, but internally we can show, you know, that the, the movement is growing at least 50, 60% year over year. Yeah. And uh, which, you know, small now, but I think there'll be a FOMO uh, for physicians that, that fear of missing out saying I, I can transfer my own clinic and retain those patients and build my, my model. Um, but the longer I stay in insurance, the less those patients have a connection to me because the less, time I can spend with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the pain of staying in is going to be greater than the pain of change. Uh, you know, when we started, it was the opposite. Uh, but now as that does grow bigger, there are people who say, you know, how can we either support or utilize this, this movement uh, for different gains? Uh, and that's great. I, I think the physicians so far have done a really good job of evaluating who's adding value and, and who's not. Um, there has been uh, any number of middlemen who will want to come and kind of subcontract, sell at a higher price to a company and then subcontract it out to a physician for a lower price. Uh, it shows the resiliency. This is a little bit like the internet. There's just so many different unrelated nodes of DPC. You can't really take it out in one shot. Um, I, I think the healthcare market has and will continue to be very difficult in the sense that uh, it's always messy, it's bureaucratic, it's highly regulated, it doesn't respond to change as quickly as, as other industries. But you take something like uh, the Him and Hers company that is uh, the newest Silicon Valley unicorn for, for healthcare, um, basically selling birth control, acne medicine, hair loss, and Viagra. Well, they're selling generic Viagra for $34 a pill that we can get wholesale for 11 cents. (laughs) 
no wonder you're valued at 30 bid at a billion dust uh, plus dollars because you have a markup on a product that no other industry would ever allow yeah right and 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 it won't for much longer she short sell if you, if they're going for ipo <laughs> because it, it just those kind of things can't work uh my favorite economist and, and you know you're a nerd when you have a favorite economist. yeah that pretty much puts you in that yeah. Class, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah it's half a mnemonic there um but uh you know milton friedman would call this an economic cartel and, and they just never last and, and i think what dpc is doing is breaking those economic cartels so to be successful in this space you have to show a, a jeff bezos or sam walton style passion for lowering the cost and, and raising the value and and uh, improving the system. So a, a group that just comes in and, and continues to sell marked up pills at outrageous prices won't last long in a yeah. DPC world. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously someone just taking advantage of a, a quirk in the market that, as you said, yeah. will eventually uh, fade away at some point. Um, so one of the big banes of physicians right now is the electronic medical, re- medical record. Uh, if you've, you know, physicians listening, of course, just mentioning EHR or EMR will want to uh, bash your head into a wall. Uh, and for patients, you know, you, you go visit your physician and they're spending a lot of time on the computer or they've hired someone, a scribe, to sit there and sort of type everything out while they're talking so they don't have to do the typing themselves. But, I mean, you recognize a big inefficiency within the system. But without a doubt, computer computerization is something that should absolutely increase productivity, uh, make it ways of providing better care, better communication of problems. I mean, I remember talking to a veterinarian once and he was, he actually had developed his own EHR of some sort and he was talking about how great it was. And he's like, you know, doctors are dumb that they have, they can't, you know, <laughs> use computers. Right. I mean, which, I mean, he's right in some level, but it's because our computers are designed or programs, I should say, were basically designed for capture of data that is used for third parties, like, you know, demographic data uh, or for, for billing and it's not actually for patient information and to you know relay useful clinical findings and things like that, which people will not believe is actually the case. I mean, yes, those components are within all the EMRs. You know, you can find all that stuff, but it's not easily accessible. It's not. I mean, you can. It's just not designed or like a note that I get from a, a family practice physician will have very little information that is useful to me in, in providing anesthetic for someone. And right. I have to dig through six pages to get, you know, I don't care if you wear a seatbelt. It doesn't really matter to me. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't care what your, most things are not if, if relevant to whether you have a history of cancer in your family. It's not relevant exactly. to me. Um, but anyway, I no. mean, so, but I know that the DPC docs, they've utilized computers because they actually are helpful. So how have you, because you have your own, I think you have your own software, correct? With Atlas MD. Right. Mm-hmm. So what if, so you obviously imagine it's developed because you just needed something for your record keeping. I mean, you either use a paper or you're going to use a computer, right? You sort of have those two options. Yeah, I, I think it's, I think docs do get a bad rap uh, for being kind of technophobes. Um, but for most of them, an EMR is a four letter word, uh, but it's, it's, we don't judge all tech. We judge the tech, I think. And, and you, you see every other doctor walking around loving their iPhone um, or, you know, Galaxy or whatever, but th- they're adopting those kind of things. They're using uh, all kinds of technology around them, whether it's smart cars or tablets or uh, email or text messaging or social media. They adopt these things pretty well. So they can learn tech. 
the point is the tech that they're working on to do their job is bad. And, and it's bad because the mission is wrong and the mission is billing insurance and, and making administrators happy, not providing patient care. So um, when you ask a different question, how do we streamline the process of taking care of patients uh, in, a, in a doctor and small business friendly way, uh, it ends up being, I think, a very easy question uh, to answer. And uh, we were able to just carve the stone away from the marble, like Michelangelo would say, and uh, in a very logical way, okay, well, docs need a way to schedule uh, and do these other pieces. In the first six months of our practice, we combined nine different software programs running parallel to each other just for the <laughs> practice the yeah, business yeah. of running the business. Um, it, it was impossible. You charting, texting, emailing, scheduling, billing, labs, pharmacy inventory, um, labels, all these things. Uh, and it's kind of like if you give a moose a muffin, the, the kids' little uh, uh, storybooks, if you're, if you're billing outside of insurance, you need QuickBooks. And if you're, you're doing that, you need another thing and another thing. Yeah. And if you're dispensing meds, you need pharmacy software. And then if you do that, you need lab software. And if you're doing those, you're going to need to ship patients meds. So you need shipping software and things that 99% of EMRs just never even approached because if insurance doesn't reimburse it, we're not building for it. Um, and vice versa, cutting away the, the, the noise, we didn't care about IC nine or 10 or 11 or whatever's next uh, yeah. or macro or MIPS. We have one specific mission and it's providing, you know, very cost effective care. Uh, now the EMR ideally should just be a tool like your iPhone. You can, you know, manage patients, you get their texts, their emails, their phone calls in one source. You can dispense their meds. It pulls it out of inventory. It adds it to their bill. It texts in their ship their tracking number for all effortlessly. That's what you know. Good tech, iPhone esque, would do for the practice of medicine, uh, ours or anybody who makes that. Uh, and and then pay, physicians get a focus back on what matters, which is finding solutions for patient care. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the reason that physicians are so upset. As you said, it's because the the technology doesn't work in the way it should work to make your job easier. It makes job the job more painful or more difficult or more time consuming. Mm-hmm. And no one would ever adopt anything on it by choice that actually makes your job harder. I mean, well, look at the outrage just this week alone. Apple updated the their uh, default mail app and moved the delete icon um, too close to the reply icon, and everybody lost their mind um, <laughs> because it's a tool they use all the time, and it just got a tiny bit worse. Um, uh, you know, patients would never tolerate using an EMR built for 19, you know, Windows 95, uh, but doctors uh, suffer with that every day. So um, when, and, and I would say it's not even insurance's fault. Uh, no. It was a weird Cold War of sorts where, all right, we want, you know, five review systems. Like, all right, now we'll just build software and make every patient automatically a five. Like, okay, well then we were doing that because that would slow you down and we wouldn't have to pay you as much. So now that it's automated, we want six or seven, um, then, you know, medical decision-making. So that's where we get those charts that don't mean anything. Like you mentioned, uh, my favorite orthopedic group, uh, my favorite note from them, 16 year old, a male. <laughs> I mean, like technically, yes, they should be, you know, but maybe you just get a little click happy on your EMR. Um, uh, yeah, but Hey, got to hit all the buttons to, to get reimbursed because 
it, again, it goes back to the plastic surgeon from earlier. It didn't matter what you did. It's how you document what you might have done or what you did do that matters how you get paid. Uh, yeah. So a flawed system would result in flawed software a hundred out of a hundred times. Yeah, no question. I mean, I can't tell you the notes I get from where I'm doing pediatric dental cases where the kids all have you know lots of cavities. That's why they're having they have to have general anesthesia, and the oral exam is normal. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. I, but then on the diagnosis, it has dental caries, right? You know, they got cavities. So, I mean, I, and it, frankly, I don't really look at that stuff anyway because for the same yeah. reason, it just it's usually meaningless because people it is it's a templated and they don't really you know write anything down. It's I mean, it's terrible in many ways, but it's because we are uh, we are uh, rewarded for things that are are not actually helpful, and so you and you respond to incentives blame the insurance company. I, I tried to put all the blame on physicians in, in part because we blamed everyone else and that didn't work. But then <laughs> that gives us the, the, again, the authority to, to fix it too. So if, if we say, well, our notes don't mean anything, but they bill great, that, that should see us as a problem. But we also shouldn't be needing insurance. If, if our patients need insurance to get treatment for strep throat or diabetes or blood pressure or a UTI, then that's a failure on our part, not a failure on the insurance. If gasoline becomes expensive, then we might insure it, but it won't because of a good market. And so we should have been looking for ways like, yeah, okay, if you want to use your insurance, that's fine, but I can give you an affordable price and I can do an A1C for $2.25 and I can do a thousand metformin for $11. So then we would not make insurance go away because it's bad. We would make insurance go away because it's unnecessary. Yeah, right. I still have life insurance and I know I'm going to die. I mean, <laughs> it's not even a risk. It's a guarantee, but it's the, the risk is, is, is win. And so uh, long-term between pay-in and pay-out, very simple paperwork, no headaches and hassles. We could get light health insurance back to something very reasonable like that as well. If doctors innovate solutions at the point of care and put the patient first. Yeah. Um, so the one, the one problem, maybe problem is the wrong word, but the, the one thing that's holding back a greater adoption of the DPC, because certainly when I talk to physicians who are primary care, there is without a doubt, a, a desire to have a practice that runs like a DPC where you have more time with the patient, you have a smaller patient panel, you know, your patients better. You're, you know, you're providing all this value and you have that, especially for primary care, you have a better relationship with the patient, which is, you know, why you go to medicine generally. Um, but one of the, one of the things that are slowing down the adoption is the tremendous medical debt that we come out of medical school with, which is, you know, quarter million dollars or 150,000. It's a lot. And, um, and so that's a big deterrent. And so people get sucked into some employed model, generally speaking, uh, how do you, is there, is there a big movement within DPC for getting to the medical schools and telling people about this? Because I feel like that's, you know, getting med students to rotate through a DPC practice would be very valuable. And I just don't know how often that's done. I think it's happening actually quite a bit. Um, you know, we used to talk about burnout in older physicians and then kind of middle-aged physicians and new docs. Now we're talking about burnout in med students, uh, which is amazing. The, but the, the beautiful part about them is, is they don't have a dog in this hunt. All they really want is to come out and be able to provide uh, great care. They, they want what everybody else wants, you know, a good salary, they, some predictability, 
but they also don't want to deal with the stress of the insurance, which they used to not see until you know residency or after. They're seeing now in med school, and and they don't like it either. Um, but they just want to see the system that gives them you know more pluses than minuses. So when they're exposed to DPC, and what I think ultimately happens is they see happy doctors who are providing full scope care, who are passionate, who are helping their patients, and they follow that. Uh, it's it's um, intoxicating to some degree because the reverse is definitely true. Uh, a burnt out doctor who hates family medicine and is grumpy yeah. in his clinic and yelling at his nurses and kicking his dog, that's contagious. They're definitely going to avoid that. Uh, so, so every opportunity that they see is like, well, this is a, a beacon of something good. Uh, and I want more of that. And I tell my students and my friends, colleagues, um, that's the kind of doctor I want. I want to be able to text. I want to laugh with my patients. I, I want to spend 30 minutes with them. I want to do procedures or save them a hundred bucks on their medicine and, and see them, you know, rejoice that it's 30 cents a month and not a hundred dollars a month. Um, uh, and so that alone the same value we're bringing to patients, we're kind of bringing to ourselves and, and our colleagues. So uh, I think most doctors who are, are doing DPC have been asked to talk at their med schools, uh, have students rotating through, um, and are kind of really the the loud minority spreading a, a bigger message because no one else is defending the status quo. No, no one's coming out and saying, you, you, you will be happier doing insurance. You should see 40 people a day. No, 50, uh, because I'll pay you more if you're right. 50. Um, you know, stuff like that. So it, it, I think it makes for an easy win. Well, it's interesting because I feel like, uh, why don't you go into a little bit of discussion on the, the tension that I feel right now within the family practice professional society their physicians and the DPC community. I know there's like some pending legislation as we record this in the federal government. I can't remember the house bill, but it's um, 3708. Yeah. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, What is the, what is the tension between the, the professional society? Because I mean, family practices, I suppose family practice and internal medicine would be the two main DPC um, professional societies that have the DPC docs in them. What's, What's the the mood within those organizations with their leadership, with their base, and with the DPC docs and sort of the federal and the sort of the federal milieu of of regulatory and legislation? Sure, uh, you know I, I think a, a key part of this is just understanding that um, there's uh, what you want, and then there's what comes out the other end, and those are usually not the same. Uh, and so the, <laughs> the the you know Congress is a GI tract; they'll take filet mignon and turn it into a pilot. <laughs> and I've never seen them go the opposite way. They never take a bad idea and make it into an amazing one. Uh, and so we, we uh, had you know, some, for years, a very simple bill, uh, HR 365, I think, almost two sentences long, saying as simply as possible, one, DPC is not insurance. Two, DPC is an approved HSA expense. Please leave us alone. Um, yeah. and, and for the past two years, we've actually, I mean, had to fight for our uh, uh, effective lives because the, the bills got so bad. And, you know, it's it's 400 plus different Congress people who get to have an opinion on it than Senate and, and most of who, you know, are divided strongly on party lines. And so now some people will try to add poison pills to the bill that you're trying to use to help people. And we just haven't found that to, to end up ultimately being a, a uh, 
avenue worth exploring. So the HR 365 that got rolled up into several bad bills became H, um, HR 6199 last year that we fought tooth and nail uh, to kill uh, for a variety of the similar reasons is being um, revived uh, as HR 3708. And it does four things specifically that on its face may not sound bad, but as if you don't apply that to the realm of DPC, um, you don't really appreciate how bad it is. Um, one, it, it effectively eliminates the ability of physicians to dispense wholesale meds, uh, in, in part because uh, retail farm like CBS are a large backer of this bill. Um, PBMs have more money than the pharmacy companies combined. Right. Uh, our ability to decrease the cost of a medicine by 99% because we, we don't involve it. It's between the patient and the, the physician. It never even goes to the insurance company and the, the pharmacy. So um, this bill would make dispensing wholesale medicines and an HSA disqualifying event. So, so an HSA bill uh, or the, the idea of HSAs <laughs> yeah. to increase consumerism would then you know, slash heavily at this. Uh, furthermore, because of, of the way the, the politics of this work, uh, this is less someone's bad, more of a the system is broken. It went through a financial um, uh, committee, the Ways and Means, which means it has to be scored by the JCT on taxes and taxes only. So any additional gain from people having a hundred extra dollars in their uh, in their pocket every month because of cheaper medicine doesn't get accounted. So they said, well, if 100% of the households use 100% of their HSA, the federal government will lose X in taxes. Mm -hmm. um, so then we need to put a cap on this so that even if they did use their HSA, they couldn't spend any more than X amount. It would effectively be the first time in history that physicians have had a, a price cap like this, and it would be only applied to direct care physicians. So if you were an insurance-based doctor and you charged $300 for a, a wellness exam uh, or, or any other procedure, you can charge whatever you want. You charge $1,000 per visit and, uh, and a patient could pay an HSA with it. In fact, a patient could buy an Apple watch that costs more than the monthly DPC fees every month with their HSA dollars, but they couldn't pay for a doctor. Um, what it really does is hampers the future of DPC combined with the next piece um, also to bring that scoring part of the bill down, they said, well, we'll only allow this for primary care. That way we can say no other specialty group will be, will have this kind of savings. So we won't lose this kind of tax dollars. So then we could never have direct uh, autistic care. We could never have direct drug rehab. We could ha never have direct cardiology um, and direct neurology. Uh, we have direct pediatric endocrinology right now uh, in San Antonio, Texas. And, and these things would become HSA disqualifying events. So the, this bill, uh, in, in the final just uh, horrificness, would qualify DPC as a type of insurance. So now the federal government at the IRS would call this insurance, and 27 states have passed legislation to say that uh, DPC is not insurance. So for your average small practice, who is both already a little afraid of burning a small business and of insurance in the government would require, you know, small practices of two or three doctors to fight the IRS to, to, to say we're not insurance. 
Um, and uh, I think this would set our patient care back uh, a decade, but I think it'll set patients back a decade. Uh, it effectively decreases DPC's ability to operate, uh, let alone any future opportunity to innovate even more value for our patients. And, you know, this is one of those things, when they come for us, they'll come for the other doctors next. So if you're an insurance-based doctor or a plastic surgeon or specialist and you think you'll be able to continue charging $500, um, it, if all they want to do is show a tax savings, then with the strike of a pen, they can cap every other physician's salaries um, at, at any time. So we really do feel like we're fighting the good fight here for the, the short, middle, and long term. So in summary... This is just this bill would just affect people who are using HSAs, which is a small portion of the market. Is that correct, or is it, or is that a larger portion of people who are going to DPCs are people who have HSAs? Well, it, what it would do is it, it, one very muddy the lines, and two, it, it'll change a lot between now and, and the Senate. And mm-hmm. what we've only seen is it'll only get worse as they add more words to it. Um, in, in the uh, in essence a patient utilizing a DPC clinic in any capacity wouldn't be able to utilize a health savings account. So uh, they wouldn't be able to use, utilize a high deductible insurance right. and a health savings account. So it, it would drive them away. They'd say, look, I, I love the, you know, hundred bucks I'm saving with you, but if not, I have to, it completely invalidates the $6,000 I want to save every month in a tax-free way. Yeah. So I'll, I'll go and spend 3000 in care over the course of the year that I don't need to, but it's the only way for me to get the other 3000 that I can actually save in a tax friendly way. Um, so it, it doesn't directly stop a doctor from doing it, but it does stop a patient from participating in it if they choose to, which is really the opposite of the HSA bill, but freedom in general is, is this strict grip on, on what is approved and what's not. Now we'll continue approving hot tubs and Apple watches, all kinds of things, you know, cosmetic surgery for HSAs, legal fees are an HSA allowable expense, but, but not medical care will no longer be a health savings account qualified expense. Um, If it doesn't just look ridiculous on his face then I have done a good job. Yeah. What, what is the role then of the professional society? Because I know a lot of physicians have been really upset with the um, the American is it the American Association of Family Physicians, um, American Academy of Family Physicians. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sean Martin sold us out. Um, I'll say that again. Sean Martin <laughs> sold us out. Um, you know, it's it's, it's a it's a hot debate uh, going on both Facebook and Twitter. But then um, a lot of passionate physicians are emailing and calling their senators the AFP supports a bill that will cap our charges. Um, in which case I would support a bill that caps the ability of the professional organization on my dues. Yeah, but oh, wait, that doesn't make any sense. They, they raise my dues every year because they feel like as a business, they need more money to do more things for me. Um, but then as a physician and a customer of theirs, they're limiting my ability to make that. money. It, I think it's, always interesting to you know kind of invert like that if it's not good for the goose it's not good for the gander um then let's make them accept all physicians whether they're family or not but make them do their cme for free make them do everything at at a price a fraction of what it could be 
Well, they would say the same thing. Well, if you don't pay us more, we'll never be able to innovate. We'll never be able to afford to make new CME. Well, we won't be able to do trade journals and educate doctors. Oh, oh, okay. So if you want the right to run your business like you see fit, then we expect the American Academy of Family Physicians to support family physicians' uh, ability to, to innovate as they see fit. And uh, a group like that, it's, it's almost cannibalistic uh, that they would um, support a bill not only directly harming their customer base as physicians, but that would directly harm patients, uh, their ability to get wholesale meds, to, to get affordable care, to get affordable insurance. Um, you know, when, when taken to its full Socratic extent, it, it's scary how damaging a professional organization is not to support a bill like this. What what is the what is the motivation for it then? I mean, they're what did they get out of it? I mean, I like I understand. For instance, I understand the AMA by sort of going along with the um, with the introduction of Medicare. They got the CPT coding bills, and so they got a lot of um, with the, they were able to publish the books, and they may get a lot of revenue from it. What does the AFP get out of this out of this bill? It doesn't sound like it'd be advantageous to anyone within their organization. Oh, you know, I mean, at the risk of sounding, you know, tinfoil hat, it's it's I'm sure it's money. Well, um, I, I mean, I imagine it is. I'm just kind of trying to figure out where. <laughs> yeah, no, I would. I, we've asked them this same question, and they have never answered it. Um, okay. And I think that's part of the problem. Um, I think they say, "Well, we we try to do a lot of things, and it's hard to please everybody, and politics is messy." Uh, no, your your support of a bad bill is because you could reverse it and say, "We want amendments. We want to improve a bad bill. Let's let's work hard to make it a good bill." Um, and I think what they were expecting is not expecting is how passionate the direct care movement is for a lot of physicians. This is the only thing that kept them in medicine Yeah, uh, that they would have left long ago if uh, they had to continue practicing insurance-based medicine. So they feel completely kind of uh, thrown to the wolves by their own professional society with not even the courtesy of Sean Martin giving us a, a fair and open explanation of why they would support capping physicians like this. Um, so, uh, I, I think they have more to gain in an insurance based model, uh, than they do from an insurance free model, or at least they think they do. Uh, so we're actively working hard. Some docs choose to, uh, you know, opt out and, and cancel their membership at, uh, to send a message. Some are trying to work through the powers that be, uh, to get them. This is the fastest growing movement in, in medicine. Yeah, and it's it's kind of sad that they they support it in some ways, which is is what they will say, and they have they've done excellent work funding DPC conferences and whatnot. But at the same time, you you can't say, well, just because I fed you a lot of healthy meals, you can't be mad at me when I feed you a little cyanide. Oh no, I'll I'll be very mad. You know, there's there's no cyanide to healthy food ratio here. Yeah, yeah you, you sell us down the river. You sell us down the river, regardless of the previous good deeds. Um, let's instead work on continuing a, a, you know, a grand future of good deeds and put this bad bill behind us or, or at least use it to our benefit. Do, do you suppose a num- one of the reasons is that there's a, I, I can only guess that in most professional organizations, my assumption is that, that they are, the leadership is t- traditionally are more academic physicians uh, who are, you know, well, they're obviously not in private practice or outside in the market because these are, they take up a lot of time and, you know, you, 
in your private practice that you have to schedule out time. You're going to do these things and it's oftentimes not compensated and, you know, we've got families and things like that. And so for the academic types, it's easier to make these sorts of meetings. It's easier to sort of commit this time as sort of your paid time as your salaried position of going to conferences and things like that. Is this sort of a, is this an academic versus private kind of battle a little bit on some level? I mean, at the leadership at AFP, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to make sense of, <laughs> I know, I know you don't have exact answers, but is it, is that how they, the leadership is within the AFP? You know, I, I do think sometimes it comes down to the academics of it. Um, and that's not to say anything bad about it, but that's, there's a great book, the, the richest man in Babylon, which is a lot of common sense information, but long story short, rich man gives poor man advice and poor man tries it and fails and comes back and says, what did I do wrong? And the rich man says, I told you to do a diamond deal with the diamond guy and you did a diamond deal with a blacksmith. Now blacksmiths are great for a blacksmith deal. And what we have is academics trying to do a, a, a free market thing and they're rarely in a free market space. Right. So they don't know how to run a practice. They don't know about wholesale meds. They don't know about billing insurance. They've never had to um, do macro and MIPS on their own. They're part of a giant system that does it for them and they're salaried regardless. Um, most of the time at a greater percentage for research than, than patient care. So they're insulated from these things. Um, and, they still probably hold on to from being kind of far reaching here that, that bias, that business in medicine is bad. Sure. So they, they haven't seen the, the benefit. You know, I love a book, a good profit. There, there's good profit and there's bad profit. Uh, and, and we're making good profit because we brought the cost of chemo breast cancer uh, treatments down from six or $700 to $6. Uh, we brought the cost of migraine treatments down to $5 and, we do stitches that would cost a thousand or two thousand dollars at the ER. We do for free, so we're in a space where we see the results of our innovation, and, and they're not necessarily in a space where they would see that all the time. So I, I can't fault them for it, but I can't fault them for trying to speak up in a scenario where they're you know unfamiliar. If if you do research on lungs and someone is asking about a spleen, you should probably say, "Hey, I'm not I'm not a spleen guy." Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And this is where uh, academics meets real world. There's, there is just a difference between the two. Yeah, I think um, there are times when we bring things to the attention of the legislators and we get exactly the opposite of what we had hoped. And Amen. I, I hope, uh, yeah, one of those, it's one of those, it's uh, easier to ask for forgiveness and permission sometimes. And uh, I, I hope this doesn't end up in the wrong direction at the end. I mean, I always hope, I always assume sort of like the movie, the good guys win in the end, but uh, sometimes it takes a while to get to where we want to go. It's never a smooth path. I, if anything, I'll take it as a compliment. Uh, you know, my, my buddy, uh, Lee Gross, uh, fought to get a DPC-friendly bill passed in Florida for five or six years, not because they didn't like it, but because they liked it. And so that made it a political football every year. And then nobody wants to get rid of a great political football. So, yes. you know, you extend it into the next year. And um, I would say affectionately, I, I don't care for either party. The left has tried solutions for healthcare that didn't work. The right is probably struggling to come up with a decent idea. Um, the fact that they latch on to this as anything can be viewed as a plus that it's getting some level of bipartisan support. Um, we're just doing it wrong. And, and we want to make sure that, uh, there's, there's a great book, Permissionless Innovation, that, that says just this, like, let us 
kind of move fast and break things. We're already very well regulated. We're licensed. We're, we're monitored. We're, we're not changing the medicine or the treatment of medicine, but we're changing the delivery of that. So it's, it's very patient safe. Um, and, uh, and nothing else has worked. So do we really want to throw the baby out with the bathwater or, you know, choke this horse with regulation before it's left the barn? Uh, I don't think so. So now we just kind of have to protect it from itself and the, but it is getting the attention. So that I, I, I'm happy about that. Yeah. Well, there's, there's no question that you'll see certain things that come, bef- come to the forefront on off year elections, abortions, one yes. uh, gun rights, uh, and and that is because there's it's a low for fundraising for both parties, and so yeah. they will bring these issues that they know are not going to get resolved, but they can threaten that the other side is going to do something, and they will. That's how they maintain their fundraising those off year elections, and yeah. and we have the, you know we have the same thing in anesthesia. There's the the battles and scope of practice in our state, and it is actually to it it's against the interests of the of all the politicians to have anything have have it resolved. Because people continue sending money to them <laughs> to prevent the bill or to pass the bill, right? And so um, it's it's like that all. And so maybe it's the same <laughs> for this sort of thing. I, too. I hope so. I hope they don't fully pass it. Yeah, I, I do think both sides mean well. Um, you know, one thing we hear we've heard this week from uh, Republican legislators reading the bill is, "Oh, on its face, I thought it sounded okay. I I thought the average price was below one hundred fifty dollars cap, anyways." Well. Um, Yes, no, maybe. What if I wanted to do direct uh, autism care and include some speech and physical therapy and occupational therapy? Oh, boy, we never thought you would do that. Well, yeah, as this movement grows, I think there's a lot of opportunities. Um, so they, they feel like they're doing the right thing. We just have to kind of help educate and explain uh, where this helps and where this hurts. And, and... You are far too kind. I, uh, I, I. <laughs> I don't think they're actually uh, their their interests are yours most of the time, <laughs> and I think their <laughs> ignorance is uh, true at times, but also uh, insincere. And I think they're they are oftentimes responding to the market signals for them is the large check they get from the PBMs or whoever. I think uh, the uh, the nice way of saying it is their confidence far exceeds their in, uh, intellect. <laughs> yes, I think I think there's some a lot of truth there. Any more than you'd expect me to give you very good sound legal advice. I would yes, exactly. I would expect a punch to give sound medical advice or how the industry works. Well, it's been a great discussion. How are ways that people can find you, follow you and I guess the products you have? Uh, so we try to be as available to physicians as possible or, or patients to answer questions. This truly is a grassroots movement. So we provide as much material uh, and consulting as we can for free to doctors. To, uh, everything soup to nuts to start their own practice. Um, we want direct care to grow fast and, and, and well, uh, you know, correct, avoid as many little friction points as, as possible if we're all sharing best practices. So uh, Twitter at uh, Atlas MD, Facebook at Atlas MD. Um, the best email to reach uh, the general group is hello at Atlas MD, atlas.md. And um, uh, we're, we just want to grow this movement. So every doctor, patient, employer who's curious about making DPC successful, yeah. we're happy to chat. Well, and the the great thing I found about just about all the DPC docs now, maybe it's partly a selection bias, the ones who are, tend to be more vocal, but uh, 
all very passionate and all, um, and even like talking to somebody like Keith Smith, you know, with the Surgery Center Oklahoma, people that are not, it, uh, they're not concerned about people taking their model and, you know, doing something different to it. They're very passionate about the model itself and the, and the different concepts and they want to spread that idea. It's like, like a, it is almost like proselytizing. <laughs> and, and, uh, and it, it's sort of, that's how everybody is with it. It's, I mean, it's really great that someone just believes in something so strongly that they think everybody should do it. And, yeah. uh, and I don't care if you do it better than me. Right. It's sort of, I just want everyone to, to experience what I'm experiencing because I think it's just transformed my life or, you know, whatever. Well, we've been accused of building a religion before uh, in DPC uh, total, but you're right because if one doctor, you know, figures an extra thing out, we all learn from. Um, the the CEO of Costco said once that every good idea we've had we've stolen. For for DPC being sort of anti or, or docs being unfamiliar with business, we're, we're inherently practicing a lot of the things that make business incredibly successful. Uh, the the um, an inventor of the seatbelt was a Volvo engineer, and they gave that patent away to everyone to save lives. Elon Musk is, is opening up most of their patents to move the industry forward as quickly as possible. So doctors don't see themselves as each other as competition. They, they see it as a virtuous business cycle. If I do something better and I can share that, then we're all doing it a little bit better. If now a thousand docs are each making us just even a fraction of a little bit better every year, now we go from iPhone 1 to iPhone 11. We go from, uh, you know, a, a nice thing to a supercomputer of value. And and our patients are the ultimate benefactor of all of that. Yeah. Well, I think it's a great way to end. And I think just the fact that we all have a little bit of humility, some mm-hmm. doctors more than others, uh, but definitely – uh, the the recognition that there may be a better way to do things and that innovation, not only just in how you treat, but also the way we're, people are treated and cared for is important to keep in mind. So, Dr. Umber, thank you so much for the afternoon. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.